In a world ruled by emotion, where reason is abandoned, God is forsaken, and history forgotten, two brave men will attempt to do the unthinkable. Use their brains. Armed with ancient wisdom, they will bring light into our modern world. This is the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. I am your host, Daniel, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Evan. How's it going? Last week in part one, we covered the history of modern political classifications, the two types of political compasses, the four quadrants and the linear spectrum. And we began our analysis of the political factions, starting with uh, those in the red quadrant, like communism, Leninism, etc. But now, we'd like to start off part two by talking about the upper right quadrant, also known as the blue quadrant. So let's go over conservatism. As we said before, conservatism uh, just means preserving things the way they are or bringing back something that used to be, which isn't really that helpful and it doesn't usually work like that. In Western culture, a conservative is general, in general supports family values, organized religion, private property, and old-style architecture. They all hate modernism, too, seeing tradition as the best way to keep a society stable and happy. They like good laws and order. As the saying goes, reject modernity, embrace tradition. Indeed. Then there's monarchism. It's pretty simple. Monarchists think that a king or queen should run their country. Boom. It's especially popular in countries with uh, monarchies or recently overthrown monarchies. Technically, if you live under a monarch and uh, support him or her, you are a royalist, though, so a kind of a, a differentiation there. Right. There are many variations uh, on this construct. Absolute monarchs are not subject to laws nor a legislature. Constitutional monarchs are bound by written laws and oftentimes uh, parliament. It's pretty difficult to classify uh, where this falls on the spectrum, but usually monarchs have some connection to a religious institution and use force to maintain their power and tax base. Very important. They usually don't intervene too much in the economy except to humble a few overambitious people. Then there's the neocons, the neoconservatives. Despite its name, a neoconservatism is a coalition of conservatives and liberals who want an interventionist foreign policy. Neocons were originally liberals who didn't like the emerging pacifism and counterculture of the Democratic Party. They hate communism and radicalism of all kinds and are willing to use force to keep enemies abroad at bay and spend a lot of money doing it. America must be number one on the world stage, and Israel is great. That's really their tagline right there. America's got to be number one, and Israel is great. However, they also tend to like the status quo on uh, domestic issues such as welfare. Prominent examples include both Bush presidents with their wars in the Middle East. Hillary Clinton could historically be considered one as well. The Tea Party movement diminished the power of the neocons, and Trump signaled a further decline. Neocons have been less popular since the Iraq wars end. Yeah, they overplayed their hand on that war, I think. Yeah, and um, uh, who's one of the other famous ones that I always rag on on this podcast? John McCain. Oh, yeah. Big neocon. So there's also paleoconservatism. Paleoconservatism became a term for those with old right ideas during the Vietnam War. Now, it kind of goes back to pre-New Deal. Like, op- those who opposed New Deal were the old right. Okay. Paleocons split from neocons over the role of America in foreign affairs. Paleocons are isolationists through and through. They want a lot less immigration and multiculturalism. They want the federal government to have much less influence on the country, with states taking up a lot more responsibility in turn. They usually hold traditional religious views. Interestingly enough, they also want protectionism and don't have an all-out love of unregulated capitalism. Uh, While neocons ruled the GOP from Vietnam until the 2010s, it has been argued that Trump adopted many paleocon ideas that many Republicans, many in the Republican base held, and he surprisingly won. Yeah. Because a big part of Trump's platform was railing against the wars, you know? Yeah. Even though he did that one time say, I'm very warlike, I'm the most warlike, you know, but he said that about everything. So it's you kind of have to take that with a grain of salt. But it, it is a fact that in his four years, he did not start any new conflicts. And in fact, he helped de-escalate a lot. I mean, he got Kim Jong-un to come across the DMZ 
and meet with the South Korean was a prime minister or president and with Trump, right? Uh, yeah, like they met and then Trump went over there and shook hands with him and, and had his, his meeting with little rocket man. And, and so there was a lot of de-escalation efforts done, done by Trump. So you got to give him credit on that. Yes. Yeah, so as an example, we have Pat Buchanan. Uh, he wrote the book, the death of the West, which I've read. It's a pretty good book. He, I'm surprised I haven't read it. I need to read it. Then. Yeah, I can loan it to you. It's pretty good. So now we got fascism, such as uh, Mussolini is a good example. Not all fascists are Nazis, but all Nazis are fascists. Oh, really? Yep. Fascists believe that feeble old liberal democracy just isn't cutting it anymore. It makes individuals in the state weak. And what I'm saying here is their view. It's not mine, okay? So don't call me a fascist. <laughs> Too late. They yeah. already are. <laughs> yeah, they're going to take a clip. Uh, yeah. In order to prepare for imperialist war, which fascists love and seek, the state must be run by a strong dictator who regiments the state and society. This makes the economy stronger and more resilient as well. Opposition, especially that of Marxists, anarchists, Democrats, and liberals, must be suppressed. I mean, come on. It's obvious. Yeah, you can't let them be speaking in your country. Yeah. They seek to implement a mixed economy. Uh, they see the free market as a great tool for creating national wealth, but it must be controlled in order to achieve self-sufficiency and national greatness. So you can't just let them make profit for their, their, themselves. It has to be directed toward national so aims. They can make profit and they can be successful, but they have to do it for us, for our country. Yeah, or at least it can't be opposed to national okay. you know, aims. Did I mention that they think their country is the best and ought to dominate? <laughs> Often, but not always, see Mussolini as an example. Fascist leaders demonize a minority group within. It's worth noting that the Nazis made fascism and anti-Semitism extremely frowned upon in the Western world. Yeah, those are two things that if someone if someone wants to make you out to be evil, they will. that's what they'll say. They'll say, you're a Nazi, or this is just like Nazism, or you're an anti-Semite. Yeah. Now, I, yeah, I will say on that point I just made about Mussolini being an ex example of going against that, He, if it weren't for Hitler, he wouldn't have— done anything against the Jews, but Hitler kind of forced him to deport a lot of Italian Jews to... Oh, as part of the Axis? Yeah, to Germany. He made him deport. He he didn't want to, and he avoided it because he thought it was dumb. He thought Hitler's uh, Hitler's whole racial theory was stupid. Oh, okay, but he just did it. Well, he thought, like, Italians were superior, but, like, everyone... It wasn't a matter... It was like Italians lifting people up yeah. or conquering them. You know, it wasn't about, like, just getting rid of some parasite group. I see, I see. Yeah. But he did it begrudgingly, you're saying. Yeah, he did it just to appease Hitler. I'm not I'm not defending Mussolini overall, but in that way, I think he was more innocent than people give him credit for. Mm -hmm. So now you got the Nazis. The they're creme everywhere. de la creme. Yeah, they're, they're, they're right behind that wall over there. <laughs> Take what we just said about fascists and apply it to Nazis. But in addition, there is extreme anti-Semitism, scientific racism, to Nazis, this means that somehow the Germans are the master race, even though they were barbarians not long ago. And they're the ones who brought down the greatest civilization in European history. Yeah. And then didn't they try to say that they were the Third Reich? Yeah. That they were like – so their, their ancestors brought down Rome. I mean, like a final nail in the coffin. And then they tried to turn around and say, no, nah, we're actually the descendants of, of the Romans and we're going to bring about the Third Roman Empire. Yeah. Wow. It's – it's just stupid. Po posers is what they are. Yeah. that's He made up the whole Aryan thing. It's, it's not even a real thing, but he said, oh, we descend from this, like, master race of the Aryans. <laughs> no, you descend from freaking barbarians, man. You're just... Yeah, you don't even have blonde hair or blue eyes. Yeah, just quit it. So, uh, also nationalism, eugenics, and the Holocaust. Neo-Nazi groups exist today, usually with some form of white supremacy, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and Holocaust denial. The weird thing about the uh, Holocaust denial is that they probably think the Holocaust was was a good thing, but simultaneously it didn't happen. You know, you'll find a lot of Holocaust denial. Like they'll say, "Oh, there was there was a swimming pool in Auschwitz." Yeah, yeah it, it was for the guards. <laughs> it wasn't for the prisoners. Yeah, I mean, come on. Let's think this through, guys. Yeah, I mean, they're not very the neo Nazis. They wouldn't make it in Nazi Germany. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, they would. They would not be the master race oh uh, no and it's yeah. just like how the uh the modern day communists and marxists wouldn't stand a chance <laughs> in the red army come on <laughs> so depending on who you ask nazis are everywhere as in everyone who voted for trump or they're a tiny number of people like 
you know, the straight up uh, white supremacist groups out there. Yeah. Or uh, KKK. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Let's get into the ethnic or religious nationalism. So starting with ethnic nationalism, uh, it's rampant, especially in Europe. Just look at the Balkans, where each ethnicity uh, got its own country. Serbs live in Serbia. Croats live in Croatia. Bosnians live in Bosnia. I'm not even going to try and pronounce that one, but they live in Bosnia. So black and white nationalism exists in America. They both agree that whites and blacks ought to have their own societies apart from each other. The black nationalists and the white nationalists both believe they should be separate. Usually, but not 100% of the time, racial nationalists believe in the supremacy of their race compared to other races. So here's some on the black nationalists. Uh, African-Americans who believe that the American system uh, is inherently corrupt and rigged against them, uh, that kind of qualifies as black nationalism. And they point out the difference between the promises of the founders and the perceived reality of black poverty, oppression, etc. They reject the American system of government and often support the formation of a separate state for blacks or emigration to Africa. This philosophy began in the 1800s when free northern blacks and abolitionists like Martin Delaney urged their fellow men to return to Africa to rebuild. In the 20th century, the ideology grew, and by the 50s and 60s, figures such as Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael led the black power movement and distanced themselves from MLK's message of nonviolence, which they did not agree with. White nationalists, or alt-right on the other hand, are kind of hard to, de- to define because it's hard to find objective analyses uh, on the alt-right or white nationalism because, well, let's face it, the mainstream media tends to paint anyone it doesn't like as Hitler. So <laughs> that's a bit tough. But here's what we know for sure. The alt-right rejects mainstream news sources. They share memes. They reject political correctness in media, academia, and entertainment. They accept some traditional conservative values, but generally believes that something must be done to curb the influence of government and media censorship. The alt-right also focuses on racial issues, such as the disparities between the crime rates of different racial groups, and tends to believe that the whites or Europeans have a net positive impact on the world, not net negative. White nationalists go a step further, or maybe a couple steps further, and argue that whites and Europeans have created the bulk of our modern world and must exist in significant numbers in order to maintain it, preferably in a white ethno-state. They also argue uh, that many problems in the West are the direct result of racial minorities failing to coexist with whites or Europeans. But here's two things that we know about them that they have in common. Uh, The black nationalists and the white nationalists, they both kind of want an ethno-state, and they are both anti-Jewish. And in fact, if you look back like at the Nation of Islam stuff that kind of came about in the 60s, obviously the Muslims don't really get along with the Jews. So those in the African-American community who uh, were involved with that, with like the Nation of Islam, obviously were going to be a bit anti-Semitic. So that's something that is a bit anti-Semitic. Well, okay, very (laughs) anti-Semitic. But it's it's you wouldn't think looking at, you know, the mainstream news or mainstream type type history. But when you look at it, yes, this was obviously something that was very strong in their philosophy. And uh, it's kind of just glossed over in history class. So what I'm hearing is nobody but the neocons likes Israel. That's what I... Yeah, so far, I, mean, I mean, kind of. That's that's where we're at. Sad. <laughs> okay, so moving on to the bottom right or purple quadrant. Uh, in general, it's American libertarianism. In America, libertarianism means someone who likes free markets and social liberty as opposed to government control. The basis of libertarian ideology is the non-aggression principle or NAP. All libertarians agree that the government needs to be much smaller and much less involved in people's lives. So you have the American constitutional principles. The U.S. Constitution contains many principles that foster a limited government. The Bill of Rights contains safeguards for individuals against government overreach, such as free speech, religious liberty, gun rights, defendant protections, etc. A lot of power was left to the states to exercise as they preferred. But the federal government could not even collect an income tax until the early 1900s, as we talked about in Episode 7. Yes. America was largely a free market economy until the New Deal, if you don't talk about protectionism. Yeah, with the tariffs, that's kind of a—it changes the game a little. But within the U.S., it was very much a free market economy until the New Deal. Imagine living back then. It would have been incredible. 
I mean, I'd just like to go back in time just to experience, you know, what it was like or for a number of reasons, but that one included, you know, what, what was it like for like the average family just to not have to pay an income tax? Just living in the moment, not a <laughs> cell phone in sight. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so next, minarchism or the night watchman state. One of my favorites. Oh, yeah. Minarchism is the idea that the government should be as small as possible while still being practical. You know, you protect individual rights. The German socialist Ferdinand Lasalle is credited with coining the term night watchman state in 1862 in an attempt to make the small government capitalists look silly. But Ludwig von Mises got the bag and flipped it and tumbled it, so to speak, Turn the fra- turning the phrase into a positive. Indeed he did. The basic idea is that the government's only legitimate function is to protect individual rights, such you know, life, property, speech, etc., through police, courts, and the military. But about everything else should be streamlined to the private sector, as limited as possible to maximize individual freedom. All right, now you take it one step further from anarchism, what do you have? Anarcho-capitalism, embodied in the Austrian School of Economics. This term was coined by Murray Rothbard, Austrian school and classical liberal-inspired economist and infanticide promoter. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? Was he? Oh, he's a abortion guy? Oh, no. He thought if you had a kid, like, you know, if you decide not to stop feeding it, it's like, well... Yeah, get, really? Get a getaway parasite, you know? Oh, jeez. I didn't know that. Yep. Look it up. Learn some new nuggets on this. I, I'm learning as much as you guys are, really. Like, I just learn something new every day. It's I think, incredible. I think it's because I've read a lot of Murray Rothbard because I had an NCAP phase in high school. Uh, so I, I think it's in the book For a New Liberty. I'll have to look look into that. You, I'm not, I don't doubt you. I, I'm sure it's real, but like, yeah. I just, uh, that's incredible that he said that. Not incredible in a good way, but bad. Yep. It's voluntary, fam. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who needs the kids' consent, right? Well, the kid. I mean, you know, it. T- you have to feed the kid. Do you? Did the kid get your consent to feed him? No, you just had him. He's there. That's true. He didn't consent to even existing. No, that's not what I meant. Oh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I well, mean, does okay. he little par- little parasite thinks he has to like has a right to eat and whatever? Oh, have I shelter. See. Yeah, like, yeah. That's right. what he's saying. Yeah. Anyways. Rothbard argued that a voluntary society could be established in which the government and their tools, such as police and courts, could be replaced by private entities and insurance corporations, competing in a completely free market in a voluntary system. This system would be based on the widespread acceptance of the NAP. Acceptance of it would would mean agreeing to refrain from violating or infringing on the rights of other people, or you face the consequences. What are some of those consequences they promise? well, I mean, the the private police would show up to your house and yes. arrest you, or give you a fine, or what? You get hauled through the private court system, yes, which cannot become corrupt at all. No, and and, and two different independent private police forces couldn't possibly show up to the yeah. same residence at the same time on the border of their, you know, respective um, areas of influence, and say, you know, hey, this is our jurisdiction. No, this is our jurisdiction, and the shootouts would certainly not ensue, and McNukes no. would not be thrown <laughs> and launched. Now let's move on to objectivism. So here, I know we got a large crew at the Sons of Antiquity podcast helping to bring this whole thing together, but I'm just going to go ahead and say I'm the resident expert out of all the people working for us on objectivism. So I'm going to give you the real facts right here, facts and logic only. (laughs) Oh, I kid, I kid. Objectivism was developed by Ayn Rand and intended to be an all-encompassing philosophy for man, for the individual human being. The political component of objectivism is nearly identical to minarchism. The philosophy is based on three metaphysical axioms. A is A, reality exists, and reality is primary, consciousness secondary. From these axioms, Rand devised a philosophy which could, in theory, find an objective answer to all of man's problems, including politics. It's almost as if you were an objectivist at some point in your life. Uh, you know, everybody goes through a phase, like we said. Some go through ANCAP phase. Some go through an objectivism phase. Some become socialists. Some think that the state should be abolished for you know, private police forces. You're right. Yeah, to each their own. <laughs> then let's move uh, to the center or unclassifiable, moderate, centrist. They have a lot of names, but the people who are really just kind of right in the middle. For the purposes of this discussion, moderates and centrists can be considered those within two squares of the center of the political compass in both axes. If you look at it at the graph, it does have little squares that are kind of 
linked to the questions. So depending on your score in those questions, it moves you farther along on the graph. And so depending on how many squares you move, that can put you in different quadrants. And so centrist and moderate. 10 is the most you can get in any direction. And the center is zero, zero. Okay. So you said two in each direction. That's that's actually pretty. uh, Two or three. That was just my estimate. Yeah. I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, centrism seeks to balance social equity with social hierarchy and a free market with protections for the vulnerable and against undue accumulations of power and money. Then there's distributism. Distributism is the economic philosophy which asserts that productive assets should be widely owned. Therefore, distributists oppose laissez-faire capitalism and socialism due to their inherent concentrations of power and wealth. As an alternative, they suggest cooperatives, small businesses, and member-owned organizations, along with regulation of large corporations and implementation of antitrust laws. Now, let me say, when when it says widely owned, it doesn't mean commonly owned. It just means that they should be like, distributed. They should be owned proper uh, privately, but they should be distributed to a lot of people. Yes. Interesting. Okay. The principles are as follows. Property rights are fundamental. Means of production should be spread widely. Uh, agrarianism with private plots is the ideal way of life. Private banks are usurious and evil. Traditional values should be the bedrock of society. Uh, Just war theory, reliance on charity rather than government programs, and guild systems. Distributism was most famously advocated by uh, G.K. Chesterton and uh, Hilaire Belloc, but is widely held to be the Catholic Church's position on a well-ordered economy uh, due to Pope Leo XIII's papal encyclical Rerum Novarum in 1891, and Pope Pius XI's follow-up encyclical Quadragesimo Anno in 1931. I hope I'm pronouncing those right for the resident Catholic expert uh, in our team. Close enough. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, Rerum Novarum addressed the misery of the working classes by supporting the right to possess private property and to unionize, rejecting pure capitalism and all socialism. Many distributists see the philosophy as an ideal which should be striven for, uh, not a top-down revolution that could be accomplished in a day. And, and there's a lot to be said for that. You know, the the idea that the agrarian system is kind of the ideal setup for man. I've thought that for a long time, and I think that's why. Maybe that's a uniquely American perspective. I don't think so. It's but not. It's it's very European too. And even there's like we'll get into like environmentalism and. Uh, what is it like homestead and yeah agrarianism later but you know even the chinese had a form of agrarianism way back in the day and that was one of their big philosophies under confucianism and yeah that's true so. it just seems like you know the products of uh, the products of the colonists you know the products of the founders at that time they were mostly agrarian people you know it was like the later stages of it right before industrialization but you know these people who created such a beautiful incredible country an incredible system of government they were farmers, and they were well-educated, they were, you know, happy, they were religious, and it just seemed like a real ideal setup, sort of like, uh, I guess the closest approximation these days is like the Amish. I'm not saying we all need to be Amish, but the way they live and the simple way they live is very conducive, I think, to human happiness, in my opinion. Then there's third way. Uh, that's what they call this philosophy. The third way is a mostly economic philosophy, which was... Uh, most famously promoted in America by President Bill Clinton, who actually had a pretty good presidency. Objectively, I guess so. It is a centrist approach between an overzealous interventionist government and the laissez-faire ideas of Reagan and company. It promotes balanced budgets, equal opportunity, personal responsibility, decentralization of government, human development, welfare reform, and environmental protection. People forget that uh, it was Clinton who did welfare reform, so it wouldn't just be show up like because you're a single mom it's like more qualifications and more incentives to leave a good to live a good life before you yeah you know instead of get welfare so and i also remember him saying uh we are a nation of immigrants but we are also a nation of laws and that that is something you would never hear a democrat saying these days but it kind of rings true so now we have the big umbrella term environmentalism there are many different takes on it uh first you have conservationism This is more on the right side of the spectrum. Many hunters, trappers, fishermen, and outdoorsmen in general consider themselves conservationists. 
Even Ted Nugent, hunter extraordinaire, believes in preserving nature. Yes. Many manly men would agree. They wish to protect the natural world so that they can continue to rely on it for their rural, often traditional ways of life and to be able to share this lifestyle with future generations. They also wish to preserve it for scientific study and to keep up with industrial demand for raw materials. Teddy Roosevelt was a huge proponent of this type of environmentalism. And I will say, being an Eagle Scout is uh, leave no trace was one of our big components. So, you know, if you go somewhere, you either have to leave it as you found it or leave it better than you found it. Yeah, I think that's a great philosophy. Because if you're just consuming you know, without producing, eventually that leads to there being nothing to consume. Yes. So you need to, it's not just like being a, like not just thinking nature is superior to humans like PETA or something. Yeah, yeah. and we'll, we'll get to that we'll in get to PETA. later ones. But yeah, there are people who believe that nature is superior. So you're you're saying that, that the philosophy is not that. It's not that. It's just like not being selfish in the present so that the future generations can have what you have too. I think it's very reasonable. Would you maybe say that uh, the philosophy is like that you each rely on each other in a way? Like nature kind of can rely on you to clean it up and you can rely on it to provide for you? Yeah, to an extent. It should be – I'm not going to – I don't want to sound like a hippie. I was going to say something about harmony, but that would have came (laughs) out. Be in harmony with nature, man. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's just not be selfish, you know, not trash the environment or take too much so that your grandkids will be worse off than you. you I like that. Besides that, there's free market environmentalism, which is the theory that the market, not the government, is the most most efficient method of preserving nature. Opponents argue that left to their own devices, big business will consume all in its path. Free market environmentalists, however, argue that it is the best interest of business to use nature in an efficient way in order to maximize profit long term, and businesses recognize this. To use up all the resources at once would put a quick end to business. These people support legislative reform to make it easier for private property owners to receive compensation from those that pollute or ruin their land or property. Which I think is a great uh, a great idea, a great thing to promote. Yeah, like if you produce air pollution from your factory, everyone in the town gets like 20 bucks a month or something, you know. Yeah, because especially in big cities, it, it affects, uh, it's, you know, it's smog and it, it causes lung disease. Uh, like that's a, re- a big reason why they wear masks or have been wearing masks in China since even before the coronavirus. Time. You know, I'm wondering if the, um, uh, that Bush tried to do where you you got a certain each factory got a certain amount of carbon it could emit every oh, like carbon credit systems. Yeah, carbon credit system. I'm wondering if that kind of falls within this. I forget mm-hmm. what the exact they had a nickname for it. Oh, uh, it was like cap and spin or, or is, oh something cap and tax. Something close to that. Yeah, it was something like that. And, and I, I remember Barack cap Obama. Cap and trade. Cap and trade, yeah. And Barack Obama continued it, right? And he was kind of criticized for that. I don't know. I think it's an okay system if you're going to try to limit emissions. You know, you can buy it. If you want to emit more carbon, you can buy it from another company, the rights to emit more carbon. If you're if you're going to try to deal with, you know, carbon production, I think that it was a pretty good way. But liberals, like, unanimously hate it. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I haven't really looked into it too much. Anyways. Then you have mainstream environmentalism in America. It's what you might call Al Gore environmentalism. The mainstream media, academia, and popular entertainment often express dire concern for the planet and support protecting the environment at the expense of other values such as property rights, national autonomy, and freedom of association. The focus here is on ocean pollution, individual and national carbon footprints, ozone-depleting chemicals, harm to wildlife, and most importantly, the rising average global temperatures. Many mainstream environmentalists believe that damage to our planet is near irreversible and tough measures must be implemented to offset the warming trend before life on Earth becomes more difficult or in some areas impossible. Like there's the country of the Maldives, which mm-hmm. is a set of islands south of India that supposedly they're, they're very low. So if, yeah, if they're it worried goes about up, rising uh, waters. Yeah, if it goes up like a foot or five feet or something, they, they just won't even exist anymore. Yeah, you know, that's what that's what's said. How, however, will we uh, uh, survive when the when the wealthy, pretty white women on Instagram can't go there and post pictures and make everyone jealous? How will we survive without that? Sad. Alternative energy sources and transportation methods are promoted. Carbon emission restrictions are proposed for businesses. The overhaul of the energy grid is an important goal. Think the Green New Deal. Finally, we have radical environmentalists. There are people you hear about. They usually, 
vote on just the single issue of environmentalism. Yes. Their main concern is the environmental impact of policies and legislation. They're extremely environmentally, environmentally conscious in their own lives and want you to be as well by force. These are the people who believe in the Green New Deal, that the Green New Deal is just like basic, you know, that Greta Thunberg will save humanity. Yes, yes, and that the Green New Deal is, is, can work. Yeah. They often treat science as dogma. A perfect example of this is the Extinction Rebellion protest in 2019. Did you ever see that? No. Paul Joseph Watson, I'm going to name drop him real quick, did a great video on that back in the day. And uh, these people were doing interpretive dance. They were dressed up in costumes. They were just screaming at the sky, talking about how, oh, if we don't protect the environment, we're all going to go extinct. And uh, it was pretty embarrassing. I mean, it's one of those things where I know you're upset, but that's not the way to convince people. If you want people to take your ideas seriously, don't say things like, and this was in the video, there was like some leader of some organization saying, some people are going to have to die. <laughs> Basically coming out and say that. You know, that's not going to convince anyone of, of your point of view, uh, let alone all the dancing and everything. But I digress on that. You know, in this extreme environmentalism category, you also have like, as we mentioned, PETA and the people who like want to go out and assassinate like uh, lumber company executives. Yes, yeah, and and people who are you know super vegan and think that that the meat industry or just eating meat is like cruelty to animals and that it's murder, and uh, yeah, there are a lot of people who have some extreme views on this topic. Yeah, and for the inevitable future when the only meat that's legal is going to be grown in a lab, we have agrarianism and homesteading. Yes, an alternative <laughs> to uh, test tube grown meat. For the masses. Agrarianism is the political philosophy that uh, advocates protecting small farmers and poor peasants against the wealthy, especially against industrialists and the white-collar sectors. It was a basic pillar of the Jeffersonian democratic ideals. It equates wage labor with slavery because you're completely dependent on somebody for your livelihood. Uh, that's debatable, but that's one of the points. And it holds the farmer to be the best kind of person because he's both self-sufficient and independent, but also the lifestyle of agrarianism, assuming you don't have slaves like Jefferson. Uh, you know, if you do it yourself, then it's it builds up natural virtues like fortitude and mm -hmm. prudence. And it builds up all these virtues like having to work all day and communicate with people to trade and all that so yeah it builds good kind of people as the as the the man from the meme said it's not much but it's honest work it is yeah <laughs> and also the modern way of producing food industrial farming is bad news too if you're an agrarianism advocate yes yeah they yeah. want you know they they want the food to be grown on like small family farms or at least you know like medium-sized farms not these huge Monsanto farms or yeah, all these huge corporations that treat their animals terribly and give you crap food. Yeah, which they do. I'll admit that, you know. Uh, it's You are going to get way better quality and quality control uh, at a local level or in like an individual household level than you will at the industrial level. So yeah. I have no illusions about that. I know it's pretty bad. I mean, the one, the one upside of this industrial farming is there's a lot more food, you know, and it's cheaper. Yes. That's, yes. the, that's the reason it's, it's the way it is, because people want cheap food. Most people do, you know, except the people who choose to spend more money on food. On the, yeah, locally grown, minority-owned, all yeah. that stuff. And lastly, this is the last one, okay. Uh, homesteads, uh, they were the small, parts, uh, small plots of land given to settlers in the West for a while in America. However, today it is a growing movement of people who grow their own food and or raise farm animals on their mostly modest land in your backyard of your suburban house, for example. Yes. They tend to love sustainability in the agrarian lifestyle. It's For most of them, it's not something they they do for as their main business. It's more of a hobby and a side gig. Mm -hmm. And I, I count myself as a homesteader. I, I would a, say you are, yeah. I have a garden, and maybe one day we'll have some chickens. Yeah. You know. Well, you're, you're, you've always said you're big into farming. I love farming. But now let's get into the, in our opinion, what the best and worst groups are on the spectrum. I'll go first here. Uh, my ideal, you know, in a perfect world, uh, my ideal group would be the minarchists. I think with a certain kind of people, a small group of people, you know, given the right set of circumstances, that could work. I think it could be a workable system with the, with the right type of people, but that's a key thing. It has to be the right type of people. 
Uh, but best in practical terms, I mean, let's be honest, it's monarchy, agrarianism, or uh, America at the time of the founding. I found that ironic that you, you think the best are monarchy and founding in America. Well, yeah, I mean, it is kind of contradictory. Like, I okay, think the he, best yeah. is Thomas Jefferson and the uh, King George. But, I mean, <laughs> I, I have to give monarchy credit because it's, it's, it's everywhere. It was everywhere in the ancient world. And it lasted for so long, generally. You know, you had dynasties, and, and it had national pride. and There were a lot of things that the monarchs could do that, that were good, that held society together. i got to give props there. Real recognize real, as I always say. Uh, but the worst is Marxism, communism, or, on the opposite side, anarcho-capitalism. I believe they are two sides of the same imaginary coin, where everyone magically cooperates and doesn't abuse power and... Plus, uh, neither have ever worked in real life. The communists and the Marxists, they believe that people will magically just work for the common good without any other incentive or personal incentive. And the anarcho-capitalists believe that everybody will just agree to the non-aggression principle without creating a government. Yeah, what happens when a group of people want a government and they form one and they start banding together and they get more and more people? And they steamroll you. Yeah. I guess I guess it would be. It's that's just, what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's completely impractical, you know. Uh, so that's See, my take. What about yours? Uh, I would say the best is uh, paleoconservatism. I have a tiny place in my heart for it, without the racism. Uh, <laughs> well, when you were reading those off, you know, earlier, I said, "Wow, I might be a paleoconservative." I, you know, I liked some of those things that, that they had to say. Not all, but yeah. some of those things were very much in line with things that I believe were good. Yeah, along with paleocons. Uh, Monarchism, like you, distributism, another special place in my heart, yeah. and agrarianism, of course, and homesteading. Uh, worst, definitely Maoism. I mean, body count. Even without the body count, it's just I, I had no clue that he was so evil and so incompetent. It's. <laughs> Do you I think mean, they usually go hand in hand? Not always, because I mean, you know, Stalin was evil, but he also accomplished a lot in his time. You know, like the. He they went from a pretty agrarian society to a very industrial one. It's true. To be like even to the modern day, it's like you know behind us, but it's a lot closer than it was like before the revolution way back in the day. That's true. So he I mean, forced yeah. everyone to do this. It was bad, but I mean, yeah, it cost the the lives of of millions of Russians, tens, and tens of millions, tens of millions of Russians, and and millions of um. Uh, people in what was the neighboring country ukraine in the ukraine yeah like three million ukrainians so yeah it was it came at a heavy price but yeah i guess he did industrialize them to some degree i mean hell hell what was that 30 years after that they got into space yeah so there's something to be said for that not saying it's right at all not trying to justify it i'm not justifying it either but um i would say in general this is my hot take i guess all those hanging out on the edge of the spectrum in any direction are bad news in practice, centrism is often the winning strategy. When you have a di- when you have a group of people who have diverse opinions, centrism is probably a pretty good way to govern. Some would say that compromise is evil, and if you compromise on your principles, then that it will only lead to more compromises later. Well, they can have their own Incapistan if they want. <laughs> All right. So, where, where do modern Republicans and Democrats fall on these scales, and what about the American third parties? Again, we must note there is a huge difference between the party rhetoric and what they actually do in office, even when they control all branches of government. Like, you know, Planned Parenthood is still funded, even though the Republicans controlled everything for two years. Yes. A lot of things like that, you know. Keeping that in mind, Republicans and Democrats actually go, they both go in the authoritarian right category, according to politicalcompass.org, besides maybe the most radical Democrats and very radical libertarian types like Ron Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the past half century, the two major parties have held similar beliefs, especially about the economy. Republicans won't lower taxes or the status quo, and Democrats won't higher taxes on the wealthy and corporations. Before the 1990s and 2000s, Republicans and Democrats agreed on many social issues, like the drug war and gay marriage, while disagreeing on abortion and the death penalty. And as I mentioned earlier, even immigration with Bill Clinton. You know, there was some overlap there. Mm -hmm. And I think Democrats and Republicans worked jointly before Trump to fund repairs to the border wall. 
It was a fence. It was a fence. Okay, yeah. But as soon as he said, we'll build a wall, they said, no, he's racist. You know, so they had just been doing it a couple years earlier, funding something very similar. And then they just used it against him because it was politically advantageous. Right. So we we have had a uh, divide recently where Democrats have adopted the liberal side on social issues and many Republicans have doubled down on traditional values. Although I will say it's it's worth noting that many Republicans are de-emphasizing social issues to concentrate on economic ones. Uh, what's an example of that, do you think? Like, you know, since gay marriage is now, uh, it was, in, the, the Supreme Court said that it's legal. So the only way to overturn gay marriage would be a constitutional amendment or yeah. another Supreme Court case that overturns it. So Republicans have kind of silently dropped the gay marriage question. They're like, well, we need lower taxes and we need to get the economy going. Less regulations, you know. Yeah. And I would say another example would be the Caitlyn Jenner thing. Yeah, exactly. And in turn, many Democrats are prioritizing social issues over economic issues, you know, focusing more on LGBTQ IA plus, yeah, Black Lives Matter. They focus more on that stuff instead of, you know, the economic uh, health. Yes. People like lockdowns might be another example. They obviously don't. Yeah, that hurt the economy a lot. Yeah, it was. They care less about it, but they they cared a lot about the social issues that went on in the past year. Yes. That's one example. In the grand scheme of worldwide politics, though, Democrats and Republicans are right of center to various degrees. The conservatives in the UK are probably about as leftist as most mainstream Democrats here. The growing Bernie Sanders Democratic Socialist progressive wing of the Democratic Party, though, is slowly moving it leftward and downward, dragging our poor President Biden with it. Yeah, but, you know, he doesn't even know what's going on. He's just rolling him around in his wheelchair. The Libertarian Party is, unsurprisingly, in the lower right quadrant, uh, though not as far down as you might expect. We're talking about the party itself, not libertarian ideology, the actual party. The libertarians advocate uh, a completely free market economy. They are actually split between anarcho-capitalists and the minarchists. They see taxes and government spending as immoral and worthy of abolition. The LP is very liberal on social issues, though they usually don't go so far as to mandate acceptance of liberal social views. Gary Johnson accepted. They don't want people to have to bake that cake, quote-unquote. And I assume that most listeners will know what we're talking about, you know, gay wedding cake or whatever it was. Uh, also, companies can discriminate based on whatever criteria they want. That's a, a belief that they have. They dislike government regulation of working conditions and the environment, too. In addition, they love gun rights and want to end the war on drugs and eliminate warfare except when the country is attacked. Uh, their best showing was 3.27% in 2016 when Gary Johnson was the candidate, which is pretty pathetic. I mean, that's extremely low numbers. They, they should have done a lot better considering the unpopularity of both candidates. Yes. Yeah, they could have really taken advantage of that, and Gary Johnson was like the last guy that they needed to have up there. He still did the best in their history. Yeah, I guess so. I guess you're right. He was. It was all that climbing Mount Everest and uh, all that. Uh, they got... 1.18% in 2020, so basically a third of what they got in 2016. So, uh, you know, they peaked right there, then they just immediately dropped off, probably because the vice presidential candidate was a brony, and that's confirmed. Dude was a True brony. True story. Yeah. The Green Party is in the lower left quadrant. As you might expect, they are extremely progressive on environmental issues, uh, believing that a ton of regulations and mandates from the government are necessary for the health of the environment and humans. They are libertarian on social issues. Overall, they are for social justice, democracy, and socialism. And they might even say environmental justice. Uh, Their best showing was 2.7% of the overall vote in 2000 when Ralph Nader was the candidate. They only got 0.3% in 2020. Now, I will say, like in previous years, it was a little better because they had Jill Stein, who's a more well-known figure. But this 2020, they had a new person. And, like, this Muslim woman as a vice president. Nobody knew who they were, so. Yeah, and they never really get any airtime, and it's just, it's bad all It's around. rigged against the third parties, <laughs> according yeah. to them. Yeah, it's just that they suck. Uh, there are a multitude of other political parties in America, but they are negligible in numbers and influence. So yep. we didn't even include them. No, you can look them up if you want. There's dozens. So where do we rank on the political compass test? And before we talk about this, I would encourage all our listeners to take the test themselves and see where they fall. Yeah. Even if you uh, have already, 
uh, I, we had before, but like things change, you know, your opinions change on, on these things and it's cool to see how they change. So maybe take an updated test, even if you've already taken it and put your score in the comments. We'd like to know. Yes, we would. Or send us an email say, Hey, this is what I got. Yep. So what am I, Evan? Um, I'm a centrist with a slight top right persuasion. I was on a, on a scale from negative 10 to 10 in both directions. I was 1.38 and 1.38. So 1.38 on the left to right and 1.38 on social so, libertarian. Yeah, I was very slightly to the right and very slightly authoritarian, but very, very centrist. Very yeah. centrist. Which you had predicted, right? I did. Okay. See, I was actually surprised by mine. So I was slightly less authoritarian than Evan, but slightly more economic right. And, and that makes sense. But like when you look at the two maps, our red dots are almost right next to each other. Um, so my economic left right was 2.88 and the social libertarian versus authoritarian was 0.87. So that's where we rank. Now, before we move on to the next category, I would like to say that I have some issues with the political compass test that we linked. And I, I have issues too. And I'd, I'm interested to hear what you, your grievances it, it asks a lot of questions that I just don't think are pertinent to one's political opinions. For example, asking what my opinions on astrology and natural unluckiness are, I don't see what that has to do with my political opinions. Yeah, those are some bogus questions. When they came up, I said, I don't remember these on the last time I took this they, test. They've but... been on it for as long as I've really? been on it. Yeah, I remember it from high school. So I think that there are people in all four quadrants who, who are delirious and like astrology. That probably put me more higher up on this by saying it was stupid. But. <laughs> now, another interjection, uh, and I know I keep interrupting, but I, I just need to know, is astrology uh, of the devil just like yoga? It's at best just stupid, and at worst uh, you're like consorting with, I don't know. With yeah, something that's not God. It's not, yeah. It's trying to find it in the, in the cosmos. Mm-hmm. When there's, there's, first of all, there's nothing there to help you. With yeah. your with finding out where your life purpose is, yeah, it's second, just random, randomly, random stars, random shapes we found in stars. It just displays a very uh, a lack of trust in God and trying to go toward other sources for your well being. That's fair. Also, one's opinion on social issues personally may not align with with laws you think the the uh, state should enforce. For example, uh, you know, it asks you like the fifth category of questions is sex outside of marriage is always immoral. You know, you, it it tends to help put you on the quadrant if your beliefs align with what you think the law should be. Yes. But think about it this way. What if there's a libertarian evangelical, you know, like a Ron Paul, if he took this test, who is a Southern Baptist, yes, but a libertarian on this issue, he would think homosexuality was incredibly sinful. Uh, that was another question. Yeah, uh, but he would believe that it should be legal. Yeah, yeah, he thinks that gays should be left alone by the government. So yeah. it's not a matter of him saying, like, I hate gays and I think they should be oppressed. It's different. I mean, yeah, and they need to be more specific. And and there aren't, uh, there aren't enough questions, I don't think. They no. need to be more. I agree. In the FAQ section, if I remember correctly, they, they address why are you asking these personal questions, and they say, well, it, it links with your p- political beliefs. I'm like, you're, mm. you're dumb. Okay, just quote it. Yeah. Another issue with the test is that it doesn't really include foreign policy. It has a few questions like enemy of my enemy is my friend and yeah. my country's always right. Uh, you can ask, you can say agree or disagree on those, but it's mostly not about foreign policy. But yeah, you or could, the military. Yeah, or the military, like what the military should be doing. Hawks and doves could conceivably be found in all four quadrants. Ayn Rand was notably kind of hawkish. A little bit. A little bit, more than you'd expect. Yeah, like on thinking foreign policy should, for sure, yeah. yeah. Whereas, you know, you have the – a lot of libertarians think there shouldn't be – like the, the military should be pretty much like non-existent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, same for every category. You have like the non-interventionists, Republicans, and I just thought that was a real omission. I agree. I definitely agree. And one quick point on the Ayn Rand thing. I, if I'm – I may be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I do believe that there was even one instance where she said that a preemptive strike against an enemy could be morally justified if the threat if their threat was big enough and existential enough and that's pretty that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of libertarians i think i i don't doubt it i don't know um i, I don't know what her position was yeah but i, I just seem to remember that i do remember that she said 
you know, like for for example, communist countries, it would it wouldn't be wrong to like invade them and force a government on them. So Yeah. She said that would be impractical most of the time. Well this is true. It would be very impractical. But I, I do understand you could also add another axis for like your personal religious beliefs if you want in like Yeah. Uh, you could keep adding axes, but I understand that when you start adding more axes it, it it's not even a graph anymore. You're starting to get into like five dimensions. And <laughs> yeah. I've created a 3D model of your political orientation. Take a look at this. Yeah, no one's – that's too complicated right there. You just I'm thinking of this on the spot though. If you wanted to use your score and see like how far from a pure centrist position am I, how crazy am I, you could, uh, you could use the equation to figure out the distance from the center Yeah. to figure out like how far am I straight line from the center. Mm-hmm. And like I think – if I'm doing my math right, the farthest you could be is square root of 200, I guess whatever so. that is. Yeah. You'd be like 14 or so away from from the center. But I would be about one or two from the center. Yeah, you're pretty close. So pretty that'd just be close. another little interesting thing. So why and how are these visual aids useful in online political discourse? These visual aids help people go beyond mere party affiliation to discover what they actually believe. Uh, While more true of Republicans and Democrats today, there is incredible diversity of opinion within the parties. There are a multitude of factions within the GOP, for example. To name a few, there are the neocons, George W. Bush, paleocons, Pat Buchanan, libertarians, like Ron Paul, the MAGA and alt-right, like Trump, the Tea Party, which would kind of be like Ted Cruz, the never-Trumpers, like Mitt Romney, and evangelical hardliners, like uh, Michelle Bachman. And uh, who's that? A governor, uh, Mike Huckabee, would be another good example of that. Mike Huckabee would be, and probably your racist grandpa. He might be thrown in there as well. <laughs> it is unhelpful to group them all together ideologically as if they are the same, and it is even worse to say the right and the left. When people like Ben Shapiro call someone a leftist, the meaning of the term is determined by the listener, who will likely associate them with many bad qualities that they conjure up in their minds, regardless of the truth, or alternatively, if you're someone who is a leftist, or whatever that even means, listening to Ben Shapiro, you'll say, oh, you know, my people, I associate that with good, leftist is good, and he's just insulting all of those people that are my friends, you know, and so it doesn't really do any side any favors. On that note, awareness of political opinions can help bridge gaps between the parties, or at least between individuals because it is unlikely that any two people disagree on every single issue. You could tell a difference between people who have knowledge of the issues at hand and those who watch a certain news channel all day. Looking at you, Fox and CNN. Almost all news channels give an egregiously biased and shallow take on current events, and that's the nature of the visual medium, point blank. I mean, it's just drive-by media. And I know that Rush Limbaugh, may he rest in peace, would use that all the time, that phrase all the time, to describe the left-wing media. But it's it's just as applicable to the to the Fox Newses of the world. You know, in visual media, it is always going to be one thing after another because that is what keeps you interested. It's what keeps you glued to the TV. It's what gets ratings, period. And we hope that you found our analysis relatively fair. We tried to be as fair as possible. Some exceptions. I, I'm not going to spare words about like Mao or Nazis or something, but for most of them, we tried to be pretty objective. What is it that Fox calls himself? Uh, fair and balanced. Fair and balanced. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even say that with a straight face. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking at a meme right now with Chad and the Virgin. Uh, yes. This is me in my own eyes. It has a, it has the political compass. Uh, in each in each quadrant has a virgin sulking, and the middle centrist position has Chad in it. Yes, and, each, and the Chad has a little bit in each quadrant, like a little yeah. corner of each. Yeah, like I said, like within two or three squares of the middle. You know, let's just take one or two good examples from each sure. quadrant. Uh, you got the the top left tries to plan market, creating mass shortages and starvation. Creator of all ideology, never worked a day in his life. Fact, you know. fact. <laughs> Bottom left um, prides himself as a free thinker while literally just repeating dogma. His sociology professor shoveled him. Uh, you got the top right, entire ideology based on returning to a society that never existed, incel. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the bottom right you have destroys planet for the sake of producing unneeded goods, attempts to capitalize on opioid ec- epidemic, you know. Whereas you got Chad in the middle. 
and he has a point for all, a counterpoint in all of these to say like this quadrant is has something good in it and I'm going to take it from that but I'm going to take something good from all four quadrants so I'll read them off for top right understands the role of the state to protect and enforce the rights of workers bottom left opposes bigotry as it interferes with people's right to do as they please top right recognizes the importance of patriotism for the sake of co- social cohesion and bottom right acknowledges the efficiency of the free market and the abundance it provides. So the Chad has recognized that there is maybe something to learn from each philosophy, each each quadrant, and he has tried to bring it all together. Right. Wow. Okay, finally, we're at our takeaways. The political landscape is complex, to say the least. It just goes to show how each person is different and how each issue can seriously divide people, even if the issue really isn't that important. The extreme ends of the spectrum are highly unstable or usually undesirable. Most successful societies have been based on ideologies which are near the center in some way. Yeah, center left, center right, but basically hovering around the center. We are both more centrist than we thought. We thought we were Nazis, according to other people. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, closer on the map than we would have guessed. So what are our lingering questions? I'll ask you, uh, are any of these parties or ideologies gaining ground or growing in popularity? Which ones are fading out in existence in America or worldwide? Well, I think it's safe to say that, that um, the, if we're talking about specific ideologies, socialism is kind of having a comeback. And environmentalism is very big and has been, I guess, since like the 70s. So those two are probably the biggest on the left side that are growing on the right you're seeing a lot more of the re, the reject modernity embrace tradition and it's kind of it's really refreshing especially when i go on social media like for the uh for the page you know for for the podcast and i see a lot of the the sites or i'm sorry not the sites what is this like the 2000s or something the site the websites on the big worldwide web no i see these pages on like facebook or whatever and they're kind of all on the in the same boat of like uh, of escaping escaping like the urban trap you know like it just just getting out into nature and having some land and living a simple life and um the agrarianism or something akin to that and that's really growing on the right and it's it's a real kind of cool grassroots type of movement and it's what I guess what I'll say is this. It's impressive to me how much people are distancing themselves from the regular political rhetoric and recognizing that all of it is essentially meaningless and it's not going to do any good. You just have to focus on you and your family. And I think that's not necessarily a group that we've covered specifically, but it is a, ph- a philosophy that's out there and growing, that people are returning to God and living off the land and a simpler life. And so that's really growing on the right. What do you think? I mean, you might disagree, but I do think like alt right. It had its moment. I don't. I don't know if it's going to last, but for a moment, it did become more popular. Like anti-Semitism is kind of on the rise. Some might say. You think it's still on the rise? Uh, at least it was rising, and now it's stagnant. But it was. It's still higher than it has been since like the sixties, probably. Probably. You know, we could say the Holocaust is becoming further and further in the past, and people. You know, farther from it, they're less inclined to think it's really important or true. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, they're more likely to make light of it or just act like it was a good thing or something like that. Yeah, I can see that. So was the political compass test rigged by the Democrats? Let's just be honest. Was it rigged by the Democrats? Um, It was rigged, of course, because I didn't get the result I wanted. (laughs) They were they were taking the answers to our questions and they were putting them under the table and pulling out boxes that had different ones in them. Yeah, yeah. and they they put uh, they put barricades over the windows, wouldn't let us see how our score was calculated. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure like thirty thousand different votes just came in, like you know, while it was loading my results. Yeah, yeah, there was a water leak that disrupted my me taking the test. That was a little fishy. We we were joking, of course. The election was completely. Free, most it was secure, like, most election, secure election in in history with the most popular president in his most yes. voted for president in history. Fact, fact, fact. Yes, but I, I do think that the test was off. It, it needed way more questions, way more diversity in the questions. And the, you're telling me the questions haven't changed since we were in high school. Uh, yeah, that's true. 
they need to update. They need a version 2.0. I mean, it's it's 20 years old. That's the political landscape itself has changed too much in that time. They need to update the questions, I think. Yeah, and if you're barely right of center, I I don't know if that's an accurate thing. Yeah, that's what kind of surprised me is like, come on now. Maybe they the uh, bias people to be more toward the center. Because I remember even in my ANCAP days, I would have trouble getting past seven to the right. Really? Yeah. Even wow. if I tried to, I, I would like only be seven to the right and only like five down out of ten. Hmm. Maybe. Okay. Let, let's, let's take a different perspective here. Maybe the political compass test itself is a tool of social engineering to try and make people seem more similar than they really are to try and bring people into this idea that they are all kind of close to the center. Yeah. Mm. Cause if you look at your, like my score, I know I'm economically I'm left of Bernie. Really? Yeah. Cause I, I put a link in the description, but like the U S landscape of people who are running in 2020 and, and the candidates we end up having for all four parties. Yeah. Like I think Bernie was like three, two or three, right? Really? Because that's how that's their scale, you know. Yeah. Yet somehow I'm left of Bernie. I don't get it. Yeah, something's something's fishy there. They must have had a question about thinking if it's okay to own three homes or not. <laughs> I must have missed that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's while that while they were covering the windows of the barricade, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so why are the parties drifting further apart? Can we blame Trump for everything? No. So there are some who want to blame him, but. No, you you can't blame him. This was he is a consequence of something that was already happening. There's, you don't think he made it worse? Well, he may have. He may have contributed to it. Obviously, he didn't exist in a bubble. Obviously not. Um, and he he may have stoked the the fire for sure. But this was already heading that way. The, the division, it was yeah, no, the division was already underway. I mean, look how divided we were under the previous president, under Barack Obama, or how divided we were under. Under George Bush, people hated George Bush, really, really hated him for a number of reasons. So we were on the on that track, and then Trump just came in and kind of he he may have aided, no, he definitely aided in the in helping to split more. But this split has gone it has or its origins way farther back than him. The funny thing is, if you go back to like the two thousands, there were lots of people who were complaining. Uh, the Republicans and the Democrats are basically the same party, and now they're mad because they're too different. You know, so I. <laughs> so what I'd, do you want? What do you want? Like, yeah. No, they're so divided. But I remember like the Libertarians saying they're basically the same party. They just do the same thing, and they just yeah. all this. But so why? I guess is the question. Why are they drifting farther apart? What is driving that? I guess people are tired of the middle. Yeah. I, there, there aren't many centrists anymore. You know, if you won't get, you'll make it through the primary if you're a centrist. Mm. I guess Romney did, but he got obliterated by a president with, you know, a bad economy. He just, it was a total failure on Romney's part. Yes. As Trump pointed out. Yes. And I think <laughs> that so much, there's so much emotional energy involved that, you know, it's forcing people to choose sides. At a certain point, it becomes like a snowball effect and it's just rolling downhill and it's like picking up steam. And so this division starts to just, cause more division and more division so it's like a a self-perpetuating thing and with the political parties here each one is forcing the other to move farther away because they don't want to be associated with that other group and that's kind of a dangerous situation because it pushes them to the extremes which is kind of what we're seeing and um it's kind of i guess you could call it tribalism it's just causing an increase in tribalism. Uh, what would a more European-style electoral system with a ton of parties competing for your votes yield in America? How big would the socialist or labor parties be? What about the Greens and Libertarians? Because those are more popular in the in Europe, right? Yeah, I mean, in a, in a system where it's not first past the post, like ours, you know, one person wins everything. Where you th- over there, it's like, oh. Um, you know, if the socialist gets ten percent of the national vote, he get, they the socialist party gets ten percent of the legislature. Yeah. It, unlike here, where they get zero percent. You know, if they mm-hmm. didn't win any of the elections, and every election is first past the post. Yes. So it our system forces a two party system. Mm-hmm. In a way, 
people say, oh, we need to like reform it. But the only way to reform it is to to get rid of state autonomy and say that, you know, we have the legislators based on the national vote. So and yes. then and then the parties become even more powerful because you're not choosing candidates. You're choosing a party who and then the party chooses the candidates that represent that party. Yes. Like and in England. And that creates a system where you got on kind of technically unelected people and you don't want that. And that's why England and other European countries are having a bad time over there. And uh, we think we're having a bad time. There's real political frustrations over there, and it's because of that system, I think. Yeah, I, the two-party system sucks, but I would much rather have that than uh, what they've got. I mean, I remember in France 2016 when Marine Le Pen was running, remember her? Yes. Uh, she was she was one of, like, 12 parties that got a substantial amount of the vote for the presidency alone. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> 12 parties. There's cra- something crazy like that. All these that got at least 1%. Yeah. And then, it, of course, it had to be a runoff election because nobody got a majority. Mm. That's when it was her and uh, Macron. Yes, and Macron won. He won. He's yes. he's president now. Yes. Yeah, I, I seem to remember Le Pen being okay, right? She I was mean, kind she was of right. the she's kind of the Trump of France. That's why it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. But she lost him. Anyways, um, so if if that was our system, and let's just say you for our legislators, just like I vote for this party. And then whatever percentage it gets, if it's above like 5%, they get seats in the legislature. What do you think our Congress would look like if it was that way? What what percent would be with each party? Oh, I don't know. Well, I guess some of the other parties would tend to get would get kind of built steam, right? Libertarians and I Greens. I, I think, think we would start to see a decrease, a slight decrease in the power of the main two parties. And we would see a slight increase in some of the outer parties like Green and Libertarian. But I don't think they would ever come close to competing with the other two just from name recognition alone and, and loyalty don't you think that a big factor in people not voting for them now is just that it's a quote wasted vote yes that's a huge a huge reason why people don't because they they know they're not going to win and so they're like okay since they're only going to get like a max three percent right best best case scenario three percent i might as well vote for the least the like the lesser of two evils that's still got a chance rather than vote for this guy who I really like or I like most, but who is definitely not going to win. Mm-hmm. Yes, that wasted vote mentality is big. And it's um, it's kind of sad, but that's just the way it goes. Anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? No, two hours is enough. <laughs> yes. That's all for today's show. Join us again next time for even more Ancient Wisdom. 